Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School lesson. We're going to uh, present this on May 23rd. And uh, again, I know I say this a lot, but when I think about that date, it's like, wow, we're almost through the month of May. Just unbelievable how fast time goes by. And uh, thank you for watching this. If you're watching this because you uh, couldn't go to Sunday school, then my prayer is it'll bless you, keep you updated, and also uh, that your circumstances will change so that you can meet with your Sunday school class. And if you are listening to this by audio because you were a teacher preparing uh, for Sunday morning, I just want to say on behalf of the church, thank you so much for all that you do not just your teaching, but your ministry, your contacts, your prayers, your love for your class and for the people um, that uh, will visit and people that will join. And may the Lord bless and prosper your class and our entire Sunday school for his glory and for the good of the church. As we uh, think about the catechism we're going through, and I hope you've enjoyed these. The question for today is, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? There are a lot of people who believe a lot of things about eternity and about eternal punishment. There are some who are certainly extremely liberal, who just deny the existence of hell. How could a loving God ever send people to hell? Then there are people who believe that once the ungodly die, they just are never resurrected. Um, my family members who are Seventh-day Adventists believe this. And so... Uh, Whenever people die, they believe that the soul remains with the body in the grave. It's called soul sleep. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this as well. And uh, the Adventists believe that when the Lord returns, only the righteous are called up. The rest just stay asleep, an eternal dirt nap, I suppose you would call it. There are others who believe that whenever the judgment takes place, the unrighteous are sent to hell and they are tormented, but only for a certain time. Kind of like a prison sentence that says five years to life and somewhere in there, they make the determination that 12 years is enough and then they let you out on parole. Well, these people, the annihilationists, believe that after a certain amount of time, and uh, I suppose this would be based on how bad you were, quote unquote, and um, so then you just simply are annihilated. You just go away. You no longer exist. The conservative position is that hell is a place for the unredeemed, and it is a place that is deserved and that it is eternal. Well, let's look at the answer that the 
catechism gives, and then we're going to look at uh, some scripture. Now, will they go unpunished? And it says, no, every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, that last phrase, sin is punished in this life. What does that mean? Well, remember the Bible says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so there is a sense in which sin, I mean, criminals are caught every day. They're put in prison and they spend time in prison, sometimes life in prison. And then sometimes they are executed for their crimes. That would be an example of punishment in this life. It also would be true, too, that if you are going to uh, drive your car and every time you see a red light, you think that means punch the gas and you go through, I promise you, eventually that will catch up to you and you're going to be involved in an accident and it may be fatal or it may be something that, you know, maims you. Um, it may be something that is financially very costly, but that would be an example, and we could go on and on and on. Um, I won't belabor the point with um, God punishing us in this life because we do reap what we sow. But that's not the only thing. Some people make statements like, well, I know I'm going to heaven when I die because I've been through so much hell on earth. Well, sadly, that's not the case. And um, the punishment of God comes both in this life and in the life to come. Now, one of the things we want to make clear is this is not some obscure teaching. Some of the people who believe in things like soul sleep and the um, resurrection of only the righteous, they can find one verse, maybe two, that kind of, well, you could um, kind of come to that conclusion if you are not careful and you don't look at any other verses. But in the Bible, we look at all of the verses about a particular subject in order to come up with our doctrine. Now, to be clear, how many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? And the answer would be once. And so if there indeed is only one verse of Scripture that uh, teaches a particular doctrine, that's enough, right? That's, that's really all we need. But what if you find six or eight or 15 or 20 verses and uh, you look and a couple of the verses seem to kind of imply one thing while the other verses clearly teach something that would contradict that. Does that mean that the Bible has errors? Does that mean it contradicts itself? Does that mean that uh, God made a mistake? 
or what, okay? My view is, and I think it's correct or I wouldn't tell you, um, my view is that Scripture, all of it, must harmonize. If you sat down at a piano, for example, and you took the uh, notes, a C and an E and a G, you would have a chord. They're not the same notes, but they fit together and they harmonize. If you play a trumpet, you look at a note and a trumpet can only play one note at a time. And so uh, when it plays, um, it can't play a C or an E at the same time. It can't have harmony. It's a one note instrument. And so what makes the keyboard so interesting and so useful is multiple notes are being played at the same time, but they're being played in harmony. And the same thing is true in the Word of God. There's nothing wrong with a trumpet playing one note, nothing wrong with a bugle playing one note. If you go to a funeral and you hear taps, it's very moving to hear that, but it's one note at a time. However, when you sit down and hear somebody play the keyboards beautifully, oh my goodness, you get so much uh, out of that. And the same thing is true in the Bible. If it says it one time, that's really all it needs. It doesn't give an uncertain sound in the time of battle. But if it puts several verses together, you've got to find a way to harmonize those verses because every one of the verses is true. And uh, the misunderstanding and the inability is on our part. And the mistakes that are made are on our part, not on God's. And so when we put all of these verses together, it's very clear about what eternal punishment is and about what hell is. Judgment in this life and in the life to come. Both are taught. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness or covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, listen to this, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul tells us there, don't be deceived by people who tell you that there is no hell or there is no punishment or it's only temporary punishment or only certain people go into that punishment. Understand that this is what brings on the sons of disobedience the wrath of God. And might I clarify, I think that in hell you will find that people suffer the full wrath of God. Here on this earth, there's a little bit of it, a shadow of it, a taste of it. But when we die without Christ and we go to spend eternity first in a place called hell, the Old Testament calls it Sheol. It's the place where the um, rich man in Luke 16 went, kind of a holding area, and it's a place of torment. Uh, 
Then later, in the book of Revelation, it talks about all of the lost, living and dead, being called up before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. Their life is evaluated, and they're going to make a defense. I was a good person. I was not all that bad. Look at what all I did. Kind of like the Matthew 7 people who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles, cast out demons, and do many wonderful works in your name? They're going to give the defense, take a look at my life and all the good things. And the Bible says that the books will be opened. And what's going to happen? Their own works are going to condemn them because while they are going to point out the good things that they do, the books have a record of the bad things that they do and the motive for the good things they do. Did they do those good things for love of Christ, for the glory of Christ? And the answer will be no. And then there's going to be another book opened up that is the book of life. And their name will not be written in the book of life. And they will be taken and cast into the lake of fire. That's their final state. Hell, where they go now, is temporary. But then when they are called up before the Lord, they will be cast for eternity into the lake of fire that Jesus told us is prepared for the devil and his angels. Hope that's uh, clear. So let's uh, take a look at some of our points and some of the scriptures that we want to look at. First of all, when someone goes into hell and later the lake of fire, understand that they are banished from God's presence. In Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 23, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we want to focus on this point in the depart from me. Go away. Go where I send you out of my presence. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here. Because when we think about God, we think about him and the Bible teaches that he is omnipresent. David even said, I could go to Sheol and I would find you there. Is God present in hell? Uh, Yes, yes. And when you think about it, understand that it is Jesus who is saying, depart from me. Now, Jesus is not omnipresent. Jesus is in a body, even in heaven. You remember that when he ascended after his resurrection, he went up bodily into heaven. The apostle Paul tells us that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is what? The man, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is in a human body in heaven. So when he says, depart from me, he's talking about the people that are lost, leaving his presence. He's in one place at a time. But when David says, 
if I were to descend into Sheol, there you would be also. What is he talking about? Well, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are omnipresent. And when you think about hell, think about it like this. Those people for eternity will be in the presence of the wrath of God, the anger of God, getting everything they deserve, and that's going to be an eternal proposition. They don't get any love or mercy or anything like that at all. So that is the man, Jesus Christ, saying, depart from me, but they never depart from the Lord, from his knowledge of them and from his punishment of them for eternity. So they're excluded from heaven and the presence of God. They're in a separate place and they're unable to pray and be heard and they have no access to mercy or to grace. Let that sink in. Can you imagine crying out to God and getting no answer? He doesn't hear you or listen to you, and there's no relief in sight. That's a horrible, horrible place to be. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that the punishment is eternal. People that you know and love that do not know Christ are headed there, and it ought to bother you because where they're going lasts for an eternity. People that we see all around us that are not saved, we think about having some kind of compassion for them. Well, we ought to because where they're going is horrible and it is an eternal place. There are no exit signs in hell, right? And so the scripture tells us in, again, the gospel of Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Those are familiar words, aren't they? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal, there's the word we want to emphasize, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So nothing about this is temporary. The fire lasts forever. And some people like to say, well, it's only the fire that lasts forever, but the souls of people that are in hell, as we said earlier, they are annihilated eventually. I think that is a clear twisting of scripture. The point that Jesus is making is when he says, depart from me, go into eternal fire for eternity. Nothing about this is temporary. And some will teach wrongly that uh, it's only a temporary proposition. I think that, it, again, is a twisting of what the Lord Jesus is saying and what he means. Now, thirdly, notice that we get a description of it. Now, all we can do is read these words, but we can't fully understand them. Someone talked about that we are bound by the straitjacket of human words. Boy, is that ever true. There are so many times when the words that we can give somebody 
are just not adequate. Now that happens here on earth. I had somebody say to me, because I've lost a lot of uh, weight, they uh, came to me and they said, man, I need to get something like that. And then they patted their uh, pot belly. Let me tell you something. I cannot describe to you what it is like to have heart failure. You have to experience it, and it's no fun. I've heard people say uh, in our church to someone going through chemotherapy, which those of you who have been through it, you know how awful and horrible that is. They say something like this, well, I need to get something like that so I could lose weight like you have. That's spoken by a person who does not understand. And the reason is, words can't really convey it. Now, I promise you, if you got cancer and had to go through chemotherapy, I would probably hear you say something like this. This is a whole lot worse than anything I ever expected. This is worse than anything I ever imagined. And there are lots of situations in life. We may look at somebody who is grieving because they've lost a child. And we wonder after a while, why aren't they getting over this? How long are they going to wallow in that? Okay, now hit the pause button whenever you think those kind of thoughts. And you might think them, but please don't ever say that to anybody because you may find yourself in that situation. And every grieving person that I know makes the statement, this is worse than anything I ever imagined. Losing a spouse, losing a child, losing a friend. It's worse because words cannot convey the depth of hurt and sadness and pain that we go through. Now that is the straitjacket of human words. It's through experience that we find out how difficult and how deep the pain actually goes. The American proverb is, experience is the best teacher. And that's the way we kind of live. You know, when I experience it, then I really learn it. All that does is prove how dumb we really are. Because if we were to listen and if we were to pay attention to the words of people and especially to the words of God, then what is written in the book of Proverbs would be true of us. You ready? A wise man learns not by experience, but by instruction. If we would only pay attention and really get and really listen and really believe and really, to an extent, feel the weight of what the Bible has to say. It would change our whole perspective. So, point number three is telling us then that the description, and this is something that you don't need to just read and go by, and you need to think about this. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, that hell is a place of outer 
darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, outer darkness means it is outside of the kingdom of God, outside of heaven. Okay, it's, it's the out, outer parts. Okay, and it is darkness. Have you ever, pardon me, have you ever really been in darkness? There are those times when you might get up in the middle of the night and they go, wow, it's really dark. I wonder what time it is. But it seems like even then, there's always some light somewhere. Your eyes can kind of adjust to it, maybe because of bright moonlight, maybe because of things that you have plugged in that uh, don't give a very much light and they don't really give enough light to function, but they are enough light, there is enough light to kind of get oriented as to where you are and that type of thing. Have you ever really been in pitch blackness? We went to um, Ruby Falls in Chattanooga, Tennessee one time, and while we were there, when you actually go through this cave and you see these falls, they would show different lights, different colors, and it beautiful, beautiful. And then for just a second, they turned out all of the lights. It's kind of a, I don't know, a startling thing when there is absolutely nothing that you can see. Nothing to get any reference by. Nothing to where your eyes adjust. They can't adjust. There's no light. I mean, you literally cannot see anything. Well, this is what Jesus is saying here. People who decide that going to hell is not going to be a big deal, that they're going to be with their friends, that they're going to party for eternity, that they would rather be in hell with the fun people instead of being in heaven with, you know, everybody else. Um, that's not what it's going to be like. Outer darkness, it says. And what's the result of being thrown into the outer darkness? There's weeping. Well, we, oh, we've all heard weeping. It's not very pleasant to be around someone who's weeping, is it? Even if we understand the reason, you know what we have a tendency to say? There, there, it's okay. Stop crying, stop crying. Then the Bible says there's going to be wailing. Have you ever really been around anybody who wails? Uh, there's not much more that is disconcerting, disturbing to your mind and your soul, and uh, is inconsolable wailing. And then it says there's going to be gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine to where the pain and the darkness and the despair and the lack of hope causes you to grind your teeth, and this is an eternal state. That's where people you and I know are going and going to enter into. We need to think about that and think about where they're going. It's eternal punishment. In Matthew 25, 46, it's torment in Revelation 14, 10, and 11. Active torment on these people. Um, it's like a bottomless pit 
in Revelation chapter 9, it's the wrath of God forever fully experienced in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. No wonder the Bible calls it the second death in Revelation 21, verse 8. It's eternal destruction. Now, usually we think about destruction like the implosion of a building or something like that. It's boom and then it's over. Can you imagine being in hell to where you are and you feel like you are being destroyed and it never ends over and over and over and over and over. That brings us then to the fourth point, as if we haven't been horrific enough. It's irreversible. There's no second chance. There's no time where somebody's going to come and say, hey, if you will admit this, if you will pray this, if you will do this, you'll get time off for good behavior or anything like that. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So in other words, there's no second chances. There's no wrong verdicts. My heart always breaks when I hear about somebody that um, has been in prison for decades and then DNA evidence clears them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad the DNA cleared them. But can you imagine spending 10, 20, 30 years of your life in prison with absolutely no hope? And then when you get cleared, how do you feel? And I would imagine there's a range of emotions. First of all, jubilance. I'm getting out. I've been cleared. And then as you begin to accept and adjust to that and being around family and making a living again, I would imagine then there might be some anger. You've missed out on decades of life, the life of your children, the life uh, with your spouse, maybe grandchildren, those kind of things. Um, I'm sure by that time, there have been previous generations, your beloved grandparents and aunts and uncles, cousins maybe, who have already passed away. Uh, there's all kinds of things that it would stir up. You would probably be way out of touch with technology and fads and morals and all of that, which would lead to tremendous anger. I uh, have compassion for those people because that's got to be extremely difficult. Yet at the same time, I'm glad that it happens and I'm glad that people can be vindicated and I'm glad that we have a justice system that actually will investigate that and admit to it and let prisoners out. Now, here's the point of all of that. There are no wrong verdicts in hell. The judge doesn't need a jury. The judge, God, knows everything about everyone. And so he's never fooled. There's never any new evidence. There's never anything that would change his verdict. It's an eternal verdict, and it is never, ever wrong. There are no mistrials, 
and there's no new evidence, and there's no court of appeals. This is, as we said, something that is irreversible. So we say all of that because that ought to cause us, first of all, to appreciate the gospel and our acceptance of the gospel more than ever before. You were very, very, very blessed that you were not born in a place where there is no mention of Jesus, where there is no gospel. You could have been, but God allowed you to be born, some of you, many of you, into a family that told you the gospel, and at least into a society where there is the freedom, as we do, to preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think also it ought to make you have compassion on lost people. This is as good as it ever gets for them. And when they die, what we've talked about today is going to be their eternal fate. We ought to be compassionate. We ought to be kind. We ought to minister to them. We ought to be driven to let them see our light, to let our good works shine before them and then point them to the only hope that they have, right? Let your light so shine before men so that others will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We ought to be praying for the lost, do you? It ought to be that we who believe in the sovereignty of God and election pray more than an Arminian would. Why would we do that? Because we of all people understand that the only hope the lost have is for a sovereign God to save them. Now, I don't believe that our prayers, we write names in the Lamb's Book of Life that are not already there. I, I believe all of that, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. But I don't know whose are and whose are not. I don't know who's going to be saved and who's not. So what do I do? I go before a holy, sovereign God, and I beg Him to save my children, to save my grandchildren, to save my neighbor, to save our government officials, to save our leaders. This is all so extremely important. And then the next thing is witnessing. The Bible says that people are saved through the Great Commission. We witness of the gospel and of Christ, and we do it, we do it to every creature, Jesus said. This is the command, and this is why we are here. And this is why I believe that Jesus and the Scripture tells us about eternal punishment. So may we be motivated, and may we be changed, and may we be blessed for the glory of Almighty God, the salvation of souls, and our own sanctification to rejoice in the Lord and what He has done for us. Thank you for your time, and may the Lord bless you as you take this in and as it becomes something that is applied to your life.